All right, yeah, you can you can have a seat for a little bit. How cool was that to have our kids in? It, I mean, just one more one more reminder is uh, as the as the the captain called called us to earlier in his I think first mate, which is his niece, I believe that he said, but Captain Billy Ocean. We need your help. This next generation needs your voice. So student ministries, children's ministry have an opportunity to sign up, and uh, we care about this next generation here. Okay, so what, um, what time of year is it? <laughs> Some of you have just been languishing since the first weekend in February, waiting for sp- the spring training helped a little bit, but not much. And now the preseason games are happening. And every year, sometime during preseason, I think of something that happened in July of 1961. Now you might wonder and even want to question me, what happened in July of 1961? Thanks for asking. So in July of 1961, a gentleman named Vince Lombardi he was one of the most legendary coaches in all of professional football. The Lombardi Trophy, the championship trophy, is named after him. He was starting his third season for the Green Bay Packers. Okay, we got a few Packer. A few, some of the pack is here. So they, uh, he was already had a great record. He, he came with not as an unknown, he was already had a reputation as a great coach and had demonstrated it in just two years. They played in the championship game the previous year, but they had lost to the Philadelphia Eagles by squandering a lead at the end of the fourth quarter, and it was devastating. So they came into that, that season that was starting in the fall of 1961, ready to go. About three dozen guys sitting in the locker room up in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And the legend walked in, Vince Lombardi, and they thought he was going to have just some amazing strategy tips. Maybe he had been looking at film and said, this is how we blew it last year. We're not going to do that. Something brilliant, because he was a brilliant strategist. Instead, he came in holding a football. The room was dead quiet, and he walked up, and they're still waiting for something, quote, brilliant for him to say. And instead, he uttered five words that became part of his legend. There were five words that he began opening every season with, with his players. Gentlemen, this is a football. What? Gentlemen, this is a football. So he went back through the basics, the fundamentals, went out onto the field, took him out there. This is a goal line. This is the 50-yard line. Those are the goal posts. Not insulting their intelligence, but making a point. Don't get away from the main thing. Don't lose the main thing. The main thing is the main thing. This is a football, and the purpose of this whole thing is to get this ball across the goal line. That year they went on to win the first of many major championships. They weren't Super Bowls back then at first. They were the NFL championships. 
And every year he came back to saying, this is a football. Let's get back to basics. Something that we think we all know, we got to pay attention because we drift. We start getting too complicated. We start getting too out there. We forget the main things and we, don't, we stop letting the main thing be the main thing. So this weekend is Vision Weekend here at Northland. And we're talking about something some of you have had, heard several times, some of you have never heard, talked to a couple of families, this was their very first time to be at Northland. They said, oh my gosh, what a great weekend to be here. But maybe for some of us, we've been here all along and we've, we've heard a few of these things, but bottom line, it's so important from a vision standpoint to say this is a football. Vision is what we see with our eyes, as I told the kids, but also what we see with our heart. And every one of us has to have a vision for our individual lives, for our family, for a ministry and a business that we're in, and for a church. And if we don't keep saying and have regular times of saying, this is a football, vision leaks, seeps out, and all of a sudden people forget why they're doing what they're doing. You forget why you're running plays, and you got to come back to the point of, hey, the purpose getting the ball over the goal line. And vision is at the core of what the fundamentals are. So this weekend, this is, a, this, is your foot, this is a football speech because vision is absolutely vital. I love Proverbs 29, 18. Uh, there are a number of different versions that come out in terms of the translation, but the King James Version says, With, where there is no vision, the people perish. There's gotta be a point of, fa- of focus. The NIV translates it, where there is no revelation, the people are under strain. The ESV says, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. In other words, where there's no point of focus, we dissipate. We start going in every direction, which is why Eugene Peterson in his translation of the message says, translates the same verse. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. And when we lose as a people our vision, just as when a team loses its fundamental, when we as a people lose a vision, all of a sudden we lose that central cadence to why God is calling us to be a community. Church is not just something about consuming and letting it be part of my consumeristic repertoire in a given week. Hey, what's this going to do for me? God is calling us to be a part of a people of his own possession, part of a movement. And it's important that we're all singing off the same sheet of music, so to speak, playing out of the same playbook, understanding our common vision that God's called us together. Benjamin Zander, the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, said, reminds us, he says, visions are not goals. Uh, a, a vision is more powerful than a goal. A vision is enlivening, it's spirit-giving, it's the guiding force behind all great human endeavors. Vision is about shared energy, a sense of awe, a sense of possibility. Vision is when we get together and we dream about what can be. Everybody needs vision, but then you come into the realm of the kingdom. You come into the realm of what God's up to in individual lives. Vision, the stakes rise even higher. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, says a vision we give to others of whom and what they could become has power when it echoes what the Spirit has already spoken into their souls. 
which is part of the power the vision God is calling us to because it's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in a hunger that every one of us has as a human being. And when we come together as a church and say, this is our vision, we're saying what Andy Stanley up in Atlanta says. He says, vision is a clear mental picture of what could be, fueled by the conviction that it should be. So it's not take it or leave it. There's a conviction. It should be this. We should be this as his people. Vision always stands in contrast to the world as it is. Vision demands change. It implies movement. And so last year, we started a new season as Northland Church, building on 40 years of amazing ministry. And we started dreaming a bit, what's, what's this next layer on this foundation, this next part of, of this ministry that God's building. What, what's it going to look like? So we started talking to each other. We had a friend from the community named Kenan Birch join us and began to facilitate surveys. Over a thousand of you filled out a survey. Uh, over 400 were in some kind of an interview, individual or small group, culminating in July of last year with leaders from all over and representatives from all over Northland getting together in a room for two days and hashing out what became the new vision for Northland Church, which is, and you, I'm hoping if you've been here, you know it, you've already heard it today, let's say it together, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That was a couple of you, so let's try it again. Engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. This is a football. This is who we are. This is who we are as individuals. This is who we are as families and small groups and ministry teams. This is who we are as, as a large community of His people, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's a vision that applies to those of you who are not yet followers of Christ. It's a vision that applies to those of you who already are. Because I need to become alive in Jesus, but the journey doesn't stop there. I grow in my experience on a daily basis of this full life in Christ. Now, the reason that I'm so excited about this vision is, is it's rooted in the words of Jesus. And Jesus made several vision statements. Here's one. John chapter 10, verse 10, that our vision statement just is saturated with what Jesus says. He says, listen. I didn't, I, I'm not, he didn't come to start a religion. He came with a much larger agenda. And he says, now the thief, the one who robbed you and you and you and every human being of their ultimate calling and destiny as a human being in the garden, by seducing us into thinking we can be a normal man or woman without God, we know best what will fulfill us. We will know best what will make us happy. We will know best how we'll find significance and security. We know best. That's what sin does. That's how deceptive sin does. God says, you sin, you'll die. They, they sin, they die, yes. Oh, heart kept beating. Lungs kept breathing. But as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead men and women walking. Jesus came into this realm of humanity, not to turn irreligious people into religious people, but to bring dead men and women back to life. He says the thief, he's interested through his lies of stealing and killing and destroying what's in you that was God created for his glory. He says, let me tell you why I've come. I've come that they may have life 
and have it to the full. It's not positive mental attitude. It's not self-improvement. It's not pasting a smile on. It's a restoration to who you were made to be as a human being and how you were made, who you were made to be. And you, and you, and me. It's why Jesus came. It's one of the most liberating things to say, I, he didn't arrive on the scene and said, hello, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring of being among the leaders of the world's religions. No, he, he came to bring the cosmos back to life. John, one of his disciples, he's actually the only one who wasn't martyred for his faith, grew to be an old man. He wrote his gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. And we've been going through a series in John's Gospel that we'll get back to in October. But we're taking a, a break for to do some other things right now. Vision Weekend, then starting another series next week called Calibrate that we'll be telling you about. But John was captured by the life of Jesus. And over and over in his writings, he, he uses words that all in English are called life. There are actually three Greek words that appear in John's writings and also in the New Testament, but particularly in John's writings, all of which are translated life. The two of them, the bottom two, bios and psyche, you get, figure out what those mean, the, our, our psyche, our biological existence. Uh, about 71 times he uses a word that's translated life, but only, only about 15 of them are they referring to the bottom two. Only about 15 are they referring to heart beating, lung breathing. The rest of the time, his references to life are referred to as zoe. It's the word that Jesus used, I've come that you might have zoe, which is the life of God. It's not just bios, it's not just biological, it's not just awareness, psychological of your existence, but it is you as a human being who are born dead, yes, still capable of great creativity and laughter and love, but it's muted under a cloak of deadness. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. And that's what the disciples were drawn to. That's why John, remember, this is a football. You've heard this before. John, in introducing us to Jesus in his classic prologue, John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning, it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It talks about Jesus being that logos, that which holds the universe together. And then he says this in verse 4, he says, in Him was life. Not in Him was religiosity, in Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That's how he begins his gospel. But John writes as he begins his epistle, 1 John chapter, chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched. Do you get it? All the senses involved in what he observed and his disciples, the disciples observed. We saw the life, this life that was the light of all mankind. We proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared. We've seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And he concludes his epistle with that classic statement, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. A lot of you know, I've spent a lot of time researching that. I've come to conclude in, uh, in my exegesis that what that verse means in the Greek is whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
It means what it says. There is a deciding distinction between every human being. It's either yes or no, or am I alive or am I not? And whether I'm alive is when I have Jesus, and when I don't, I'm not. There are varying degrees of experiencing that death and experiencing that life, yes, but there's this line of demarcation between alive or not, and it's whether we have Jesus. Now, John was obviously a disciple of Jesus. John discipled a man named Polycarp, who's one of the great preachers of the early church into the beginning of the first century. Polycarp actually ended up being martyred, giving his life for the gospel. Polycarp discipled a guy named Irenaeus. So Irenaeus essentially was the apostle John's spiritual grandson. One of Irenaeus' famous statements he makes, I'll give you the whole statement and then give you the summary. God's glory is the earth creature made fully and eternally alive with the light of the Spirit. In other words, the glory of God is man fully alive. Irenaeus got it because Polycarp got it, because John got it, because Jesus proclaimed it. Jesus proclaimed things like, remember, this is a football. You've heard this verse before. John chapter 14, verse 6. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way to coming back to life. But understanding, he says, I'm way and I'm truth and I'm life. So often in religious realms and churches, we talked about this a year ago. One year ago from this weekend, we started talking about this when we launched our vision to the day, or really to the weekend. He says, I'm way and I'm truth and I'm life. What are most churches known for? We're known as for way and for truth. Way is looking at how we should behave and serving morality, truth, looking at ideology, instructing. One involves the will, the other involves the mind. One involves doing, the other involves thinking. Anything wrong with those? That's not a trick preacher question. Anything wrong with those? Of course not. But it's the, it's, it, the gospel is incomplete if I think Jesus is just way and truth. So many religious institutions and churches tend to focus just on way and truth. A lot of us who grew up in environments. I had a woman in church last night who mentioned to a, a friend of Arlene's and mine that uh, she said it was her first time here thinking, I, I, I grew up in, in this, that religiosity realm that that he's talking about, and I, that's not how I want to raise my children. Tell me more about this. A lot of churches simply say, hey, sign our doctrinal statement, truth, behave like we do, way, and you're good to go. You're not good to go. If we're going to engage people to be fully alive in Jesus, it's embracing Jesus in the gospel is way, truth, and life. It's so it's not just a morality and ideology, it's vibrancy. It's not just serving and instructing, it's living. It's not just will and mind, it's heart. It's not just doing and thinking, but it is being to the glory of God. And it's understanding, just like there are three uh, st- legs to an easel for it to stand up. You can't say one of these is more important than the other. Religious people, religiosity people will tend to say truth is more important or way is more important, tending to neglect life, and it is alienating a generation. And what's happening is these kids growing up in religious environments, what I'm so excited about here is that they can grow up and receive the way of Jesus, receive the truth of Jesus, as well as the life of Jesus. This past week, the, the elders 
uh, commissioned me to extend Northland's reach of ministry and other environments. I was speaking in a conference up in Michigan, a place called Gold Lake, and talking about this very thing. Talked about way, truth, and life. There are people from around the Midwest there. There was a group of people from Ann Arbor, Michigan, from a church there, and uh, some younger folks and older folks that were getting the gospel. We had some conversations about it. During the week, they had a, a skit night talent show type thing. These guys put on a dance and they, uh, third of them had waist t-shirts, third of them had truth t-shirts, and uh, the other third had life t-shirts. And the deal was not, if the, just the way people dance, it didn't work. If just the truth people dance, it didn't work. Just the life people dance, it didn't work. For the heart to be engaged with the gospel, you got to have everybody in. It brought the house down, had a blast. A few days before that, I was interacting with some students, seniors in high school and college. It wasn't qu quite the, ha the happy moment because tears were involved. After I spoke, we were talking about it, and two of them at different times came up to me and said, I'm on the verge of walking away. And tonight it became clear why, because I've been in a way and truth church, and there's no life there. A young woman and a young man didn't know, didn't know each other, two different parts of the interaction. Do we care about the gospel, the whole gospel, the gospel of way, the gospel of truth, and the gospel of life? Are we just about beating other people over the head with a doctrinal statement and judging them because they don't come into our little behavioral spectrum instead of understanding that the way and the truth belongs in the realm of life? And life is to inform way and truth. Truth is inform, to inform way and life. They work as a unit. It's a brilliant statement that Jesus made. This is a football. This is our vision. This is a verse that you and I have heard. John, at the end of his gospel, he said, this is why I've written what I've written. Uh, these things have been written, John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, 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 and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's about part A as well as part B. Part A is orthodoxy. It's that way in truth. Part B is the vibrancy. Part A leads to part B. It's not one or the other. But the beauty and the power and the scary thing that's happening in the church right now is that there are a lot of younger people that uh, older people are questioning, do they care about orthodoxy or not? And I love how the younger people are calling the bluff of religiosity and saying, until you show me your vibrancy, I'm done with your orthodoxy. The whole notion of dead orthodoxy is being exposed as powerless. That creates an amazingly fertile ground for revival within the church if we will humble ourselves before God and say, instead of letting Jesus inform our religious club, we let him transform us as a community of human beings with the gospel. And my yearning for these kids, these kids that are growing up, it's not just that they will hear the gospel, but that they'll see it. And our, our teachers are not just about, okay, let's just memorize Bible verses. No, let's, let's talk about the why of those Bible verses. And it's certainly not going around orthodoxy. 
You can't do that. There's got to be the depth, the beauty, the richness, but then it's got to be fleshed out on a daily basis. So that's the seeds. How about the soil where this vision belongs? It's in a culture of human beings like you and me that are grappling with tough stuff and we're saying, is there an answer? And may we provide that for our young people. By the way, the statistics are still there. Mid-60 percentile, depending on the survey, to low 70s. Somewhere in that mid-65 percent or so to low 70 percent of kids who grow up in churches leave the church by the time they're 30. And one of these kids two weeks ago, looking at me with tears, said the reason that my friends have, and he's pointing up to the screen, this slide was up there, he's saying, because my church talked all about orthodoxy, but they don't model or know anything about the vibrancy of Jesus. There's a lot at stake here. It's far more than you and I as consumeristic. We're consumers by nature. It's far more than us just as consumers saying, hey, what's church going to do for me today? It is when we hear the clarion call of the Son of God who says, I have come that they may have life, have it to the full. He did not come as a motivational speaker or a guru or a, 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 an infomercial guy. He came as the Lagos the, to reclaim his creation. And one of the most powerful things that I can ever awaken to as a human being is the call of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. And realizing that I'm placed in a land where there are dead men and women walking, and I was one of them, or maybe I am right now. Mitch Album, I don't know his spiritual inclination, but he's a phenomenal exegete of, of culture. What that darkness and that deadness looks like. Here's what he says. Here's some quotes in one of his books. He said, describing a particular guy, even his happy moments feel encased like holes jabbed in a hard sheet of ice. He sat down in his life, and there he remained. Another statement, the darkness has taken a seat alongside him, and he's used to it by now, making room for it the way you make room for a commuter on a crowded bus. We encounter people like that every day. I've been like that, where you, you make room for darkness like you make room for a fellow commuter on a crowded bus. Okay, it's just there. He'd let the days go stale. He put his heart to sleep. Oliver Wendell Holmes described it pretty powerfully in a poem called The Voiceless. He said, alas for those that never sing but die with their music still in them. I don't know where you are with Jesus, but you do. Could be the people right around you and your immediate family don't know. But here's what I do know, is that in every human heart, God's placed eternity. We're all still His image bearers, and we're broken, but we've got a wiring. Lewis referred to it, there's a music in us that we're born remembering. We spend our lives trying to trace it, and what Oliver Wendell Holmes describes is one of the most horrifying realities of the human existence, and here is my heart cry, and you want to know why this vision is not just a nicety, it's a necessity, is because I pray that you as a human being, if you don't yet know Jesus, and you've got a song in you, that you will not die with the song still in you. You've got a song that's meant to be lived and sung in the way that you're wired to the 
glory of God. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life, have it to the full, have it according to what you originally intended for, to be fully alive. So what's that look like? Some of you have been waiting for this because you're really nervous about the ride home because you got a quiz coming. So I'm going to do these real quickly. We've talked about them in detail before. We will in the future. You want to know more about them? You've got a worship guide with references. You can go online to northlandchurch.net slash fully live and look at a synopsis. But these 10 characteristics I just came up with because I need a reminder at the beginning of a day, am I going to be fully alive today or not? What's going to be involved at the end of the day? Was I fully alive in Jesus or not? You go up to our staff room. Our, one of our common areas for, in our offices, and you'll see a big uh, strategy board and uh, some balloons and some receptacles over to the side with empty cards, and then there's a bulletin board. Each one of those, we have 10 kinds of cards. Our staff came up with this. It's amazing. There are 10 words. Awe, brokenness, creativity, depth, engagement, fellowship, generosity, heart, intimacy, journey. And in each one of these, there's a descriptive word, awe, navigating each day with a sense of awe. Brokenness, going through painful experiences as a steward. See, creativity, seeking to glorify God in life and vocation. And what they are... This board fills up by at the end of every week where staff will write down, hey, there's a fellow staff member that's modeled one of these or drawn me into it. Maybe they've modeled creativity or they've drawn me into a sense of fellowship or generosity. And I just want to tell them that. They tack it on the wall. Might not be a bad idea for your small group, for your family. So let's review these. It's quiz time. You thought I was going for the A, didn't you? (laughs) Fully alive people live with a sense of depth. We're not superficial. As Richard Foster says, superficiality is the curse of our age. And fully alive people get into the Word of God. And they say, not just what's happening today, but why is it happening? What's the meaning behind the events? Jesus put it pretty clearly in Matthew 4, verse 4, when he says, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. Fully alive people get into the Word, and they stay there. Fully alive people live with a cadence of creativity. We're image bearers. Doesn't mean we all color, but we all create on a daily basis. What will I create today that did not exist? A word, a phrase, a good work. Maybe whether you're an engineer or an artist or an accountant. Accountants need to be careful with how creative they are with their numbers, but there are plenty of other ways to go. But what is it that we will create? We online, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, there's a link on our website and you can go to it more. Some more people are finding out that we just did it a couple of days ago. Which, Which one of your favorite or most significant ABC letters of being fully alive. What's grabbed you? And uh, somebody responded, uh, Melinda, she wrote this. She said, I've always enjoyed creating environments, whether it's for a party, uh, an event, decorating an office, carving out special space in someone's home, learning that my own creativity stems from being created in the image of God. 
who is the first creator and maker of all things, has given me freedom to embrace that spark of creativity in me as something more than just a hobby. Rather, it's part of how I image my creator. And by using that gift to his glory, it's become part of how I worship, how I experience being fully alive in Jesus. Fully alive people are deep people, are creative people. They live with a sense of of awe. We notice. Oh, can somebody who's not a believer live with a sense of awe? Yes. But followers of Jesus understand the authorship of that awe. They relate with us. It's not just an impersonal, oh, isn't that a nice sunset? But God, you rocked that sunset today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We're given lenses, filters, eyeglasses to see supernaturally. When I come alive by His Spirit, all of a sudden I start noticing. Paul David Tripp writes about someone who was not noticing. He writes about a guy, he says, he was surrounded by glory but saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders but was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything but he saw nothing. Fully alive people see and notice, and we worship. Fully alive people embrace and steward brokenness. Fully alive is not always a smile. Last time I checked, you and I lived in a broken world. And the shrapnel of explosions embeds itself in our hearts on a daily basis. And typically, our only resource outside of Jesus is let's avoid it or kill the pain or anesthetize things, get distracted. What Jesus does is He comes along and says, I'm going to enable you to steward it and engage with my hope and my power as you see me turn these ashes into something beautiful. And right now, I'm... As I speak, a dear friend of Arlene's and mine is fighting for her life. We were just with Bonnie and her husband Jim last weekend after I spoke at this conference at Gold Lake. They live in a cottage on a lake and she loves to water ski. They've been dear friends. Yesterday morning she was water skiing, doing what she loved. And they're still not sure if she fell and that caused a stroke because of the trauma or she had a stroke and that caused her to fall. The bottom line, she's in a coma with brain bleeding and we're pleading before God for her life. I just got a text right before. I don't typically check text right before, but I slept last night with my phone in my hand. Now, let me ask you this. Does the gospel have anything to do with that? If you think fully alive is just pasting a smile on, it's not the gospel of Jesus. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But I'm telling you, because I'm here, you can take heart because I've overcome the world. We can engage with brokenness authentically and as a result experience the gospel fully, fully alive people. Walk in fellowship with one another. 
I mean, Jim shared with me about the fellowship he's experiencing in that intensive care room right now. Fully alive people. It's more than just friends. It's understanding that the Holy Christ Spirit dwells in me and He dwells in you, and there's a connection that we would not have if we weren't fellow followers of Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. What's an indication that we're alive? Our love. And it's not just a, hey, I love you because of what you do for me. It's this giving the love of Jesus away. Anyone who doesn't love remains in death, which has a lot to do with engaging Fully alive people engage. There's engagement. We're not just here for ourselves. We're here to engage one another. Somebody on our social media, on the, 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 one of the uh, Facebook or, or uh, Twitter, I'm not sure which one it was, said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm new to my word this year because of the, the vision is engage. I'm fairly new to Northland and found many ways to engage with others. She's getting it. Hudson Taylor one time, the great missionary wrote, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked if I might help him. I finally ended up doing the right thing and asking him to do his work through me. The revival that you and I get kind of excited about talking about, it will happen as the Holy Spirit moves us to engage our culture, our community, one another, to invite people to small group community, to invite people to large group gatherings, to invite people to service opportunities, to invite people to the kingdom, a gospel calling to engage others with the life of Jesus through outreach and service and evangelism and discipleship and justice and compassion and culture care. It has everything to do with us living a lifestyle of, of generosity. These kids got it. We're hoarders by nature. That's what, and, and what the gospel does is unleash my white knuckles on my time and on my finances and on my abilities. And I want to be a, a, a life giver. Somebody in one of the social media posts said their favorite word that impacted them both, her name's Cindy, she says is generosity. She says, as a result of our vision, I began the practice of tithing. Fully alive people live with a sense of heart. What? You're going to be quizzed on this. This is one of the heart. And living with heart is not a living just with emotion. It's living with an understanding that I'm mind, emotions, and will all have got to be tracking as I live with passion. This year, those football games, the guys who play with heart are the guys that are going to win, the guys that are skilled, skill-wise, what they're doing, game plan-wise, what they're thinking, heart-wise, the passion that they engage. That's how He calls us to live. That's how He calls us to engage with brokenness as well as beauty, with creativity, learning each day that we're to walk. in intimacy with Him. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, this is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. How well do I know Him? That's what this next series that we're going to do called Calibrate is all about, sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
and seeing my life calibrated, renewed, refocused in intimacy. To be able to know how much we're loved and to know that each day is not a random day to be wasted, but each day is a day. Remember uh, final exam time? I'd ask professors every time. I would, I would ask, terrible to think about that right now at the beginning of school. Remember the question, hey, is this exam going to be cumulative? You guys know that? Man, I knew that question well. I ask it all the time. Because I, I, I hated when it was good. The best teachers would say yes. Because goodness, yes is cumulative, meaning everything you've learned this semester applies. But every now and then they say, no, it's just going to be this last week. Let me tell you something, life is cumulative. Every day builds on the other day. And it's not a building of aimlessness or purpose or purposelessness, but it's me focusing each day that there is a strategy, there is an intent, there is an agenda, there is a plot. Christianity is not just about a bunch of truth propositions. It's about the plot of God restoring His cosmos to life for His glory. He did that through Jesus Christ coming modeling, dying on the cross. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, for the earth one day will once again be covered. The glory of the Lord will be covered. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth once again as the waters cover the sea. We're headed to that point in time. That was the case before the fall. It's going to be happening one day. And you know what? When my head hits the pillow tonight, rest assured, whether I've participated in it or not is beside the point. Because if I've been disobedient or not a follower of Christ, I might not have participated. But you hear this every day. The tide of the glory of God is making a little bit more progress somewhere on the world. And one day in the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus refers to it by the phrase, in the renewal of all things, the glory of the world, Lord will once again cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And he says, the privilege you and I have every day is to be a part of that, a little by little by little. It's not just having a quiet time and saying, haven't I been religious, but it's me intimately relating with him in such a way that I live my day with more awe, engage with the brokenness with courage and hope. Walk in creativity and let Him through His Spirit create that which one was. Be rooted in the Word of God in depth, engaging my culture, my neighborhood, this community, walking in fellowship, doing it together, being generous with what God has given me, living with heart and passion, intimately relating with Him. That's a journey. That's a journey that's worth being involved with. Absolutely. So. Dream. Dream with all of these. Somebody in, in, I don't know which, if it was Facebook or where, but uh, she, Amber and John are their names. They decided all the letters are significant to us. They wrote this, we are A in awe of God's grace on this J journey called life. After we lost our first son, Blake, at 35 weeks pregnant, we felt B broken. However, instead of turning our backs on our faith, we E engaged with Jesus on a more I intimate level than ever before. There is a D depth to the faith in our hearts, H, that we discovered after connecting and finding F fellowship at Northland. Then on November 1st, 2018, God generously G blessed us with Silas, the most perfect rainbow baby ever. And we look forward to raising him in this community, teaching him to be fully alive in Jesus and helping him see, create a strong foundation of faith. I love that. Absolutely. T. 
T.E. Lawrence, uh, the Lawrence of Arabia guy, said this. He said, all people drink, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds awake to find that it was vanity. You know, a dream that never came to fruition. But the dreamers of day are dangerous people, that they may act their dreams. They act them with open eyes and they make it possible. I am not interested in being a part of religious institution that punches the card, and I don't think you are either. But I am very interested in being involved with a community of men and women that are living to the symphony of the gospel, the dance of the gospel. Having a group of young men and women who say, would you show me the gospel? Would you show me the dance of the gospel? Guys, let's dream it together. Let's see it. Jesus did. And you know what? If he saw it, it's going to happen. The question is, do we want to be involved or not? You guys ever heard of Walt Disney World? When was the opening day? What year? 1971. Live in Orlando, don't know that? Come on. 1971's opening day. Walt Disney died, I believe it was 1966. He'd been dead about five years. But his wife, Lillian, was there for the grand opening of the Magic Kingdom. That's what opened first. One of the chief engineers was there with her, and they were at a vantage point where they could see a lot of Magic Kingdom. And he's looking out, and he looked over at her and said, I'm just so sorry. Walt couldn't see this. She didn't look over at him. She kept looking at the Magic Kingdom. And she said, but he did see it. That's why it's here. Jesus says, can you see it? Can you see what I'm doing? The prophet Isaiah, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? May we be dreamers of day. And may we take that football and run with it. And rejoice and be grateful in the privilege of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. Jesus, thank you for the privilege that you give us as we, right before we leave here, as we sing this one song about being grateful, would you enable us to sing it from our core? Would you enable us to sing it as stewards? Would you enable us to sing it with freedom, with a dance, with depth, with sincerity? Would you enable us to sing it with awe and brokenness and creativity and depth and engagement and fellowship and generosity and heart and intimacy and journey? Would you enable us to thank you for what you've done so far in Northland Church over 40 years and what you're about to do this year? May we be dreamers of day. In the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life. Amen. Amen.